Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. It's so good to see everyone this morning. Mark chapter 10. We are going through the book of Mark. We are, once we get to chapter 11, which will be next week, we enter directly into the last third of the book where we are headed like a, just a straight line to the cross. But there's this pause in Mark chapter 10 because Jesus has already started towards Jerusalem. And what we're going to read this morning is the pause in the middle of Jesus' march to Jerusalem. So let's read. We're going to do verse 46 through 52, and uh, uh, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you've laid it out in the various gospels in the way that you intended it for us to read. And Lord, you have purpose in all of your word. It's the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed scripture for us to live our lives by. Lord, I pray this morning you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see spiritually so we can hear and see what the Spirit is saying this morning. And Lord, we thank you for all of this. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the reason I said that this story is a pause is because if you remember, now last week we did testimonies, but the week before when we were uh, reading it in Mark, in fact, it would actually be good before I get started for you to go back to verse 32. So I didn't tell Trevor this was happening, so I just so oh, Trevor, you're awesome. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. You remember us talking about this? And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So you can go back to verse 46, but I wanted to bring that verse up because Jesus has been walking out in front of the disciples for three years, and now all of a sudden, they are amazed and afraid because he's walking. Something has changed in the way that he's walking. Something has changed, and they recognize the change. They recognize the serious, and if you all remember, I made the illustration that my kids can always tell 
when they're in trouble because the gait of their mother or even their father changes. Everybody remember that stomp through the house when mom or dad were coming after you? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You knew something was different just by the sound of their feet. Something is different as Jesus and his disciples start heading towards Jerusalem to the point where verse 32 says they were amazed and they were afraid. Scripture talks about having your face set like flint as you go, go forward. And it, appear, it appears that Mark is trying to get across that Jesus had a determined something was going on that caused everybody around him to say, whoa. Now, if that's the approach Jesus had, Jesus is still on his way and where we come in here in verse 46 is that they're coming to Jericho. This isn't the Jericho that had the walls of Jericho. That's about 15 miles away. This is new Jericho. It's a little closer to Jerusalem. It's about a mile away. And so as they're coming in, this would be a great, great, great place for a blind beggar to be set up. Because just like at the bottom of interstates where we see homeless people who are asking for money, because there's a lot of traffic. If you are going to be a beggar, being in a high traffic area is the best way to do it. So this guy was probably here a lot. There's something unique that happens in verse 46. We actually know his name. It's the only gospel that records his name, and it's the only named healing in the entire book of Mark. If you go back and look at all the other healings, they, it doesn't have their names. It has, who they, it has like what their condition was, but not their name. Bartimaeus gets a name, and we think that's probably because, if you skip all the way down to verse 52, the very last thing it says is, he recovered his sight and followed him. What many scholars believe is Bartimaeus never quit following Jesus and went on to be a part of the church and was known to the people uh, that this letter was written to, which we believe is the Roman church. And so Bartimaeus's name gets thrown in here. Now, if you read Matthew's account and Luke's account, you don't get their names. And if you read, I believe it's Matthew's account, you find out that there were two guys that were blind. And just so I can point out, in case you get on the internet, and one of the internet atheist warriors get a hold of you and say something to the effect of, well, here's an inconsistency, because... Uh, this one's got two blind people, and this one's got one. It always sounds like the brilliant arguments that you get against Scripture. And uh, it's really easy to just simply say, uh, in, the, in the first century, sometimes they just focused on the most prominent person and left everybody else out. And then sometimes people were more meticulous and added the detail. So one book's got more detail than the other book. That's not an inconsistency. That's not a contradiction. So I just threw that out. For all the internet atheist warriors that may be watching this on YouTube. You know we get like 500,000 views every Sunday, right? So I was, look, I was looking at a YouTube count. It was like we had 17 views. And I was like, that is absolutely. Smash that like button, please. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sometimes right in the middle of the sermon, I'll have this thought. 
can you imagine somebody from 20 years ago saying smash that like button in the middle of a sermon? Okay. So that's all I will say about that. Totally lost my place. That's what happens when you do something stupid. So as you keep going through this, uh, through this narrative, in verse 47, you find out that the fame of Jesus, because he's not been to Jerusalem, but the fame of Jesus has spread. And we know that it's spread because verse 47 says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, when he heard that it was the guy everybody is talking about, and what are they talking about? Because we've read several places in Mark that the fame of him spread throughout all the region. What was the fame centered on? Healings, casting out demons, and the teachings that he, were, that he was doing. Everything that Jesus did and said was like bombs going off throughout, uh, throughout all of Israel. And his fame was out in front of him, and the blind man, having heard about Jesus, Bartimaeus, has made a conclusion hearing the stories. The conclusion Bartimaeus comes to is that this is the Messiah. Now, not everybody came to this conclusion. Most people, remember when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're Elijah. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, Peter, blessed are you, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't logically deduce who I was. The Spirit of God, my Father in heaven, has revealed this. Now, I'm going to make an assumption which is dangerous, but I'm going to make an assumption that something similar has happened to blind Bartimaeus hearing about this stuff going on with Jesus that he recognizes by the Spirit of God that Jesus is the Son of David. So let's, let's talk about the Son of David. That is a messianic term, and you would not use it unless you meant this is the Messiah. I'm going to give you a couple Verses. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 11, 1 through 4 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, I always thought this verse was odd, but if you've ever cut down a tree and then come back later and see a five foot shoot coming out of the bottom of the stump because you didn't. Kill the tree. How many of you have had this experience? We're in Appalachia. Yesterday, I was working in the yard, and there's this whole area that I had cleared out last year that looks no different than it did last year because all these shoots come flying up. You have to, like, you have to really get the nitrous in the soil perfect for tomatoes to work, but you don't have to do anything, and you can cut all the way to the ground, the stump, and get five-foot weeds back or whatever these things are growing in my yard, they, they grow up quickly. And, and what, what is being said in Isaiah, it's a prophecy about the Messiah who is to come from the stump of Jesse. He's called a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was, anyone? 
David's dad. David's father, Jesse, and we're talking about a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is a messianic prophecy about the coming Messiah and it was understood this is who they're looking for. They're looking for someone who's going to restore righteousness and justice to the land all the way to the point of him striking the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath, his lips, he shall kill the wicked. They go, the, Isaiah goes all the way to the eschaton, the end. He goes all the way to where Jesus in his second coming is going to do just that. Blind Bartimaeus knows Isaiah 11. I'm going to read Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be, he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. This is again a messianic prophecy that is linking it. Jeremiah says it the same way Isaiah did. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. In other words, coming out of the lineage and out of the house of David is coming the Messiah. I'll give you one more. Ezekiel 34, 23. <clears throat> and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Ezekiel, speaking after David, is prophesying that David, or like these other verses say, someone from the line of David is going to be the Messiah. I wanted to give you that Old Testament background so that you can have the same sort of background or at least some information as to what's in Bartimaeus's head when he hears the stories about what Jesus is doing, he has come to a conclusion, probably by the Spirit of God, that Jesus is the Son of David. Meaning, he believes this is the Messiah. That's what he believes. And it's not based on anything he has seen. Because he can't see anything. It is based on what he has heard. And he cries out. So, <clears throat> he wasn't quiet. There's a crowd. He's got to get the attention of Jesus. Now look at the loving disciples and followers of Jesus. So kind. So welcoming. Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Oh, isn't that lovely? 
The Messiah's got more important things than a blind man. Shut up! That's probably similar to what they may have said. This is Jesus. He does not have time for you. We're doing something important here. We don't know what it is. We think that he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. He doesn't have time for you. So they rebuke him. For some reason, in verse 48, it says, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Evidently, being a blind beggar on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem causes you to have thick skin because he is totally undaunted. And we don't know what this looked like. I just know the words, many rebuked him, means it was more than one person told him to shut up. And he did not. There's a... There's a sermon here, and since I'm preaching one, I'm going to stop for just a second, okay? There's a sermon in verse 48, and it's one of, I've got three things I want us to focus on this morning, and this is one of them. You can not give up, and you cannot be silenced by the rebukes of the people around you. You can't give up. And you can't be silenced when you are seeking God or when you are serving God. This is incredibly relevant in two directions. It's relevant in that if you are seeking God for anything, if you are praying and seeking God, it could be somebody in your family that's not serving Him. It could be Like Bartimaeus, it could be a literal physical healing. It could be something going on at work. It could be something in your marriage. It could be any number of things. I think somebody's trying to get in. May not know. Thank you, Daniel. It could be any number of things. But the thing that you get from what Bartimaeus did is he did not bow down to the pressure of people telling him to shut up. He didn't give up. Now, we may not literally have somebody telling us to shut up as we pray. But internally we do. I I wrote this down, that there is a lying, energy-draining, daily whispering of the enemy. And you all have heard what this sounds like. You have an inner dialogue in your own head all the time. Now, sometimes it's not, I don't want to blame everything on the devil, okay? In fact, the devil probably does less than we think that he does. If you want to know who your real problem is, just go into one of the restrooms and look in the mirror. Uh, You are probably your own biggest problem. I don't know if you've noticed, but all of your problems have one common denominator. You. That's not a popular uh, position to take, but it's the truth. Now, the devil is clearly involved and knows how to push buttons in your life. 
I tend to view it as he knows that if he pushes this button, you'll spin your wheels for six weeks in anxiety. Or you'll spin your six weeks or seven weeks or seven months or years wrestling with different things as he just pushes little trigger buttons in your life. And that's all that he's got to do. Whisperings. He encourages your hatreds. He encourages your prejudices. He encourages your lusts and your fears and your anxieties. That's, he shoves and suggests that is what he does. But we get accustomed to thinking certain ways. We get accustomed to thinking things like, I am a failure. I am not smart enough. I am not spiritual enough. I don't know enough. I'm going to quit praying because I just don't have enough theology to figure it out. I'm going to quit seeking God because I just, uh, I, I, I just can't stick with it and my track record proves me right. I'm not consistent. So this is just who I am. I'm a failure. I'm worthless. No good. Maybe next time I'm ready to take a nap. Because if I take a nap, maybe when I wake up, I won't feel the feelings, or I'm going to eat some food, or I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to do something to distract myself. I'm certainly not going to keep praying. I don't know if anybody has ever experienced this in your Christian life, but I already know the answer is yes. Every single person sitting here knows exactly what I'm talking about. The reason that Bartimaeus is is a sermon in verse 48 all by himself is he cried out all the more. The lesson that I want us to get, point number one is don't quit praying. Don't quit seeking God. If you find yourself having quit, the good news is you can just start right where you're at and start praying again. You do not have to get into your head this idea that I've got to earn points like in a video game and I've got to get up to 500 prayer points in order for God to act and if I quit I go back to zero and I got to start clawing my way back up this mountain of works and endeavors and that's the way we view Christianity it's like a video game with points that we lose and energy bars that are always clear blinking red at the end Does anybody play video games okay That is not the way grace works. That's not the way God works. There's another branch in verse 48. And that is dealing with our culture today that very well could vocally tell you to shut up. It's possible. It's likely. If you, if you are sharing your faith on a semi-consistent basis, and if you are semi-consistent in your walk with God, you are going to get rebuked. You just are. You should erase from your heart the idea that our job as Christians is to make everyone like us. Now, We must be kind and loving. We must have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. We have to exhibit 
the fruit of the Spirit in our interactions with people. But when push comes to shove and you get to the just bottom line of the issue, the message of the gospel is offensive. It has always been offensive, and it will always be offensive. And Jesus promised people will hate us because of the message. Not the Christian bigot message. The message is very simple. You are a sinner. You must be saved from your sin. Bottom line, nobody likes that. So in our culture, and I know I say this a lot, but I say it because this is, this is, this is your work week prep. When you go back out into the world, you're going to deal with lots of stuff. So this is part of my job. So here's, here I will say again this Sunday, like I did every Sunday for the last six weeks, I think. The world no longer views Christianity as a good thing. It is no longer a good thing to be a Christian. We are like in the last little envelope bubble of the Bible Belt that may have a slight cultural maybe okay that you're a Christian vibe. But it's disappearing quick. Very, very quickly. So, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to be rebuked and be silent? Or will you continue to lovingly, gently, with loving kindness, be a standard bearer for the gospel? I am not talking about looking for fights to prove that you're right. That is a mean-spirited way to go. That is not what you're looking for. However, if you are talking and sharing your faith with people, and you should be, if you are uh, letting people know that you are a Christian, you are going to encounter resistance. Bartimaeus called out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Look at verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. Now remember verse 32. Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem in such a fashion that they are amazed. And now he stops and says, Okay, bring this guy up. Call him. Bartimaeus was calling on Jesus, and now Jesus is calling on him. Now, Verse 49 has my second point. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart! Get up! He's calling you! I don't know if anybody sees the irony. Because these are the same people that just told him to shut up. Now what's really funny about this is the expression, take heart, in Greek is literally, cheer up. It's all good. Things are great. The Messiah is calling you. I know we told you to shut up 33 seconds ago. But now, cheer up. It's funny how quickly, now maybe they should get some credit 
for changing their disposition, maybe. Um, but what's really interesting is, is and I think it, the number is six, the phrase take heart is used six times, and five of them are by Jesus. Take heart. In the world you'll have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. Right? Jesus uses that phrase several times. It's okay. I'm with you. The only time that it's used by somebody other than Jesus is here. So they went from shut up Bartimaeus to, hey, cheer up. He's calling for you. So they did change their attitude. The thing, the, the thing, I, wanted us, um, the, the thing I wanted us to think about with that is, is don't be, this is number two, don't be somebody who is a roadblock for another brother or sister in Christ and just constantly be a discouragement to others. Look to be an encouragement to people. Look to be somebody who is supportive to your brothers and sisters in Christ and helpful to your brothers and sisters, not somebody who would tell Somebody else to shut up. Now, the way, that, the way that that would typically happen, the way that I can envision that happening, is that we, we sometimes, when people are going through something difficult, um, we, we have a tendency to withdraw. We don't want to be involved. And the body of Christ is supposed to be involved in the sufferings and the difficulties of our brothers and sisters. But we have a tendency in our convenience culture to say, it is inconvenient for me and my schedule um, to take any time out to be helpful to somebody else. So maybe we don't just rebuke but maybe what we do is we just totally abstain from being involved in other people's lives. I think everybody in here has felt the sting of that in church at some point. The feeling that here I am surrounded by people and I am dying inside. But I am uncomfortable myself to reach out for fear of somebody saying, Okay, I'll pray for you. Right? We want to be a church that is encouraging and a place where you can say to somebody else, I need help. I'll have more to say about that in coming weeks because we are looking at implementing... This isn't the way I intended to announce this, but we're looking at implementing uh, Sunday school here at the church, which will create some small groups. Um, and small groups are specifically designed so that you can get to know other people in a way that you can be comfortable with those people so that you can be vulnerable and not feel like if I share anything, people are going to withdraw. And if you are a withdrawer, Stop it.
Just read this verse and laugh out loud with all the rest of us and say, I don't want to be rebuking the blind Bartimaeus next to me in this, in this church. Maybe not verbally rebuking, but, a, but re, my rebuke is my absence. My rebuke is, I don't, I can't, I got to work 65 hours a week. I mean, I got, I got things to do. And you, you're not going to be involved with that. If we have a blind spot in America, in our work ethic, the work ethic is good. We're supposed to have a strong work ethic, but we glorify and worship it, don't we? We really admire the guy who puts in 80 hours a week, don't we? Secretly, and I'm talking to the guys in particular, but secretly somewhere down in the, in the back regions of my mind, I am impressed by the guy who... 73 divorces later, put in 80 hours a week. That's a real man. No, it's not. The work ethic is great. You did great on the work ethic. You left a trail of devastation behind you as you did it. That, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm not suggesting not to work. Okay? That is not the suggestion. The suggestion is, if work or something else causes you to totally not be involved in anybody's life, maybe even your family's, then you need to stop for a second. And I'm saying this because right in the middle of gas prices being five bucks a gallon, and I'm spending way more at the grocery store than anybody should ever be expected to spend, right? So are you. So I'm saying this in the middle of a time where some of you are like, I need overtime. I need time and a half. And I get that, but what I'm saying is, is what is the condition of our heart? Truly, I can measure it in my reactions to other people. Jesus, well, the the book of 1 John says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we have love for the brothers. The reason I know that I'm a Christian is because I love you. That's why 1 John is the scariest book in the Bible to me. Okay. We don't want to be a rebuker of a blind Bartimaeus who is crying out for mercy and help. We want to be a church where we embrace the blind Bartimaeus and figure out a way to minister to those that are in need. Let's keep going. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. It gives you a little attitude, a view into this guy. He's blind, he's a beggar, but he's unwilling to give up. And when Jesus calls him, he springs up. Comes to Jesus. Verse 51. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I have to mention that it seems like, seems like that Jesus would already know what the issue is. And we can go ahead and assume and know with, I think, a pretty good deal of certainty that Jesus knows exactly what he's after. 
In fact, we know that because Jesus, uh, when he teaches the disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, he says, your father already knows what you need before you pray. Therefore, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be, right? So Jesus' instruction is, your prayer should be a devotional prayer that is seeking God on a daily basis, and you are going to trust that God knows what you need. But at the same time, Jesus wants him to express the faith that Jesus already knows that he has because he was calling out in the face of opposition, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus already knows this guy believes in him completely, totally, utterly. It also, probably, Mark is putting this in here because Jesus uttered this word-for-word, exact same phrase two Sundays ago, well, 2,000 years ago, but we talked about it two Sundays ago when he talked to James and John, the sons of thunder, who come up to him and say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand. You remember that sermon, okay? So there could probably be an on-purpose highlight from Mark to say the disciples were trying to jockey for position in the coming kingdom. Bartimaeus simply wants to see. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I already said at the beginning of the sermon that most scholars believe that the way this is written and the fact that we know Bartimaeus' name indicates Bartimaeus never quit following Jesus. Most of the people that Jesus healed did not immediately get up and follow him. Most of them shouted for joy, went leaping and dancing and praising God. There's, well, that's the book of Acts. But most of the people that are healed, they, they're excited about the healing, but it doesn't say like it does here, he followed him. And the week that he goes to follow Jesus is the week leading up to his crucifixion. So why does Mark stop? Because once we get into verse chapter 11, we are automatically right back into Jesus' march to the cross. He stops right in the middle, Mark does, to tell this story. This is the third thing I want us to see, that Jesus is concerned about individuals, where they are, no matter what is going on. In the middle of Jesus having his face set towards Jerusalem to go do what he's called to do, he stops to deal with a man who has faith in him, who has believed what he's heard around him about these stories. He knows 
who this man is. It is the Messiah. And he calls out, and it doesn't matter that people tell him to shut up, and it doesn't matter that he can't see. His faith causes Jesus to stop and say, call him, and he heals him. Your faith has made you well. I don't know if you all ever have the thought that God doesn't care. Now, sometimes I'd hear preachers say something like that, and I would think, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Of course he cares. The Bible says he cares. But the older I've gotten, and the more interesting things I've experienced in my life, the more I understand that there's this running dialogue that we've already talked about that goes on in our minds and our hearts that says, how can God allow things to be this way? And there's this growing sense that floats around in varying degrees in people's lives that says, He doesn't care about you. Sometimes the way this works out is, is that somebody will have a prayer answered, And rather than rejoicing, your heart collapses. I don't want you to raise your hand if you've had this experience. But we probably have all had the experience where we see somebody be blessed in some capacity in an answer to prayer, and the first question we have is, what am I doing wrong? I'm not alone in that, right? Now, the Bible says that I'm supposed to rejoice, and and you would think that my default setting as a Christian would be, Homer receives a blessing from God, he has been praying, he's shared with me that he's been praying, he's shared with tears that he's been struggling and fighting and wrestling and he's been praying, and God comes through and it's been a three-year process. Now, you would think as a brother in Christ that my reaction would be to throw my hands up and say, thank you, Jesus, for answering Homer's prayer. This is great. My faith is increased. Or my reaction is, wow, what am I doing wrong? Now, if you are the person sitting there confused, like, well, I would say, that's wonderful, then great, this part of the sermon is not for you at the moment. But there's a lot of people that struggle to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Sometimes we kind of rejoice when others are weeping and weep when others are rejoicing. We, we invert that. You can't allow disappointments and a lack of an answer to prayer to cause you to feel and think, God doesn't care about me. God is distant. I'm, I'm not, you know, God answers Homer's prayers, but not mine. This text of Scripture tells me that Jesus is specifically concerned about people who have faith in Him. And that our job is to be like Bartimaeus, 
crying out for his help. How long was Bartimaeus blind? We don't know. But he's an adult. He's been blind long enough to have a position staked out on the road to Jericho. He's been blind for years. And God was aware of every millisecond of his blindness. And Jesus came at the right time, in the right moment, responding to his cry and healed him. So, the moral of the story is, don't give up. Keep praying and seeking God. Keep calling on his name. Don't let the world tell you to be quiet about your faith. And don't let the inner dialogue in your mind tell you to give up. God's not going to answer your prayer. Number two, be somebody, not like the guys in verse 48 and 49, be somebody that will be an encourager of those around you, not telling people to shut up. Number three, in your persistent pursuit of Jesus and trusting in Him, having faith in Him and His timing, as you are aware that I need to keep pursuing Him and calling on Him, He cares and loves you and is individualistic towards us in the answering of His prayers. And at the right time, in the right moments, according to our faith, He may do the thing you're asking, or give you grace to keep living in whatever is causing the issue. Whatever the case is, you keep pursuing Him and trusting in Him. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and stand up. I want to ask everybody to bow your head as we go before the Lord in prayer to dismiss. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for the encouragement of it. God, I, I pray this morning that you would help us be an encouraging, open people to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would help us Lord, to be people that don't give up and don't quit and don't back down. Lord, I pray that we would recognize the tender mercy and love that you have towards us as individuals. You do care. You are present. We thank you so much that you are a God of mercy. And that mercy is new every morning. But we give you Thanks for that, and we pray that as we go out this week, Lord, that we would shine like a light. We would be blazing for you in our life, in our words, in our conduct. We thank you for all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.